Welcome to Monday Morning Murder in the News with Alyssa Carroll. Good morning, heathens, and happy Murder in the News Monday that I'm going to try to release every single Monday morning because the rest of the regular news is just hot, scary garbage, and you know you'd rather be hearing me and my bullshit anyway. So I've scoured the internet for the headlines so that you don't have to. Happy commuting, and here we go. And side note, happy Murder in the News Monday from the road because I am having a bit of a vacation and I'm in a hotel room. So if you can hear some annoying humming in the background, I do apologize, but the temperature in this hotel room was 77 and that's not going to work. (laughs) Moving on. So our first case comes from winknews.com and the title reads trunk lady, as in the trunk in a trunk like a suitcase, cold case victim in Florida identified after 53 years. So more than 53 years after two police officers found a body inside a black steamer trunk in a wooded area behind a restaurant, St. Petersburg, Florida's oldest and most infamous cold case victim has been identified as Sylvia June Atherton, officials said. When the officers opened the trunk on October 31, 1969, they found a woman's body wrapped in a large plastic bag, according to a post on Facebook from the St. Petersburg Police Department. The victim had visible injuries to her head and had been strangled with a man's, quote, Western-style bolo tie, police said. The woman was also partially clothed in a pajama top. The victim was buried in a grave marked Jane Doe in Memorial Park Cemetery, and her body was eventually exhumed on February 10, 2010, authorities said. So throughout the years, investigators have tried multiple times to identify the victim using her teeth and bone samples, but officials said the samples were too degraded. Meanwhile, the, quote, trunk lady mystery was featured on television shows and cold case conferences. This year, cold case detective Wally Pavelski discovered an original sample of the victim's hair and skin taken during the original autopsy and sent to Othram Labs in Texas. In April, a DNA profile resulted from the sample and officials said DNA profiles were obtained from her children to confirm her identity. Atherton of Tucson, Arizona was 41 when she died, officials said. She was a mother of five. Once Atherton was identified, um, the Pavelski found her children and contacted her daughter, Silen Gates of California, who was nine at the time of her mother's disappearance. According to her daughter, Atherton left Tucson with her husband, Stuart Brown, five-year-old daughter, Kimberly Ann Brown, adult son, Gary Sullivan, adult daughter, Donna, and her husband, David Lindhurst, and headed to Chicago. Gates and her brother, who was 11 at the time, were left in Tucson with their father from a previous marriage. Gary Sullivan also eventually returned to Tucson to live with them. Pavelski determined that Stuart Brown died in 1999 in Las Vegas, but there was no mention of his wife in court records. It is still unknown who killed Atherton. Other mysteries surround the case, including the whereabouts of the children who left for Chicago with Atherton. The St. Petersburg Police Department is asking anyone with information regarding 
their whereabouts or regarding Atherton's homicide to contact Pavelski at 727-893-4823. So, wow, that is a mystery. Now, our next article comes from NBCnews.com, and it's not really about murder, but it heavily pertains to the kinds of things I put on my podcast and why you guys are here, so I thought I'd share it. It says, The shape of your brain may strongly influence your thoughts and behavior, a study finds. So, the article goes on to say, Though much about the brain remains a mystery, scientists have long surmised that our thoughts feelings and behavior are the result of billions of interconnected neurons that transmit signals to each other thereby enabling communication between the regions of the brain and we know this but a study published wednesday in the journal nature challenges that idea suggesting instead that the shape of the brain its size curves and grooves may exert a greater influence on how we think feel and behave than the connections and signals between neurons. A research team in Australia arrived at that conclusion after taking MRI scans of 255 people's brains while the participants performed tasks like tapping their fingers or recalling a sequence of images. From there, the team examined 10,000 different maps of people's brain activity gathered from more than 1,000 experiments worldwide to further assess the role of brain shape. Next, they created a computer model that simulated the way a brain's size and shape affect waves of electrical activity, better known as brain waves. They compared that model to a pre-existing computer model of brain activity that closely aligns with the understanding of neuron connectivity as the driver of brain function. The comparison showed that the new model provided a more accurate reconstruction of the brain activity shown in the MRI scans and brain activity maps than the prior model. James Pang, the study's lead author and a research fellow at Monash Monash University in Australia, pardon me, likened the significance of brain shape to a pebble making ripples in a pond. The size and shape of the pond helps determine the nature of those ripples. Quote, the geometry is pretty important because it guides how the wave would look, which in turn relates to the activity patterns that you see when people perform different tasks. End quote, Peng said. David Van Essen, a neuroscience professor at Washington University in St. Louis, said the brain shape theory has been floated for more than a decade, but most researchers, he said, still subscribe to the classical hypothesis that each of the brain's nearly 100 billion neurons or nerve cells has an axon, which functions like a wire to carry information to other neurons, and that enables brain activity. Quote, the fundamental starting hypothesis is that the wiring of the brain is central to understanding how the brain functions. Now, Peng said his research doesn't discount the significance of communication between neurons. Rather, it suggests that the geometry of the brain plays a more essential role in brain function. Quote, what the work is showing is that the shape has a stronger influence, but it's not saying that connectivity is not important. 
Peng also noted that the brain shape hypothesis comes with an advantage. Brain shape is easier to measure than brain wiring, so paying closer attention to the size or curves of the brain could open new avenues for research. One topic worth exploring, he said, is the possible role of brain shape in the development of psychiatric neurological diseases. In theory, Peng said, the speed at which traveling waves spread to different regions of the brain might affect how people process information. That, in turn, could contribute to the patterns of brain activity associated with diseases like schizophrenia or depression. But not all scientists are convinced by the new research. Van Essen, for instance, still remains skeptical. He says, quote, It would be an understatement to say this is a controversial theory, and it really needs to be put through its paces to evaluate critically whether it stands the test of time. End quote. Van Essen raised several concerns about the study, including the fact that the researchers' models are based on an average of the shapes of the participants' brains. According to Van Essen, that approach glosses over dramatic differences in patterns of surface folds from one brain to the next. And side note, I'm with him there on that, the patterns of the surface folds and whatnot. But anyway, Peng, however, said the findings remain robust even after performing an individual level analysis of the brain. So we'll have to see if anything comes out of this, but that is super interesting. Our next article comes from cbsnews.com, and the title reads, this goes with last week's, right? Madeleine McCann's search near Portugal Reservoir leads to, quote, objects secured, end quote, but unclear if they are clues. So the article says, investigators found objects in Portugal for clues on the disappearance of British toddler Madeleine McCann, but it is unclear for now if they are linked to the case. German prosecutors said Thursday. McCann was three when she went missing from her family's holiday apartment 2007 while her parents dined at a nearby tapas bar. Don't get me started on that, but the point is that they are bringing up clues and closing off the area, so maybe, perhaps, maybe, we'll have to see. And seeming like it might be a pattern, our next article comes from cbsnews.com. The title reads, 16-year-old boy in Weirton sentenced to 80 years for killing mother and sister. A West Virginia teenager was sentenced to consecutive 40-year prison terms in the fatal shootings of his mother and sister after a judge rejected the defendant's pleas for a lesser sentence. Connor Crow pleaded guilty last November to second-degree murder after waiving his right to be tried in juvenile court or by a jury. He was 13 in September 2020 when he killed his mother, Melissa, at 39, and his 15-year-old sister, Madison. He was 13 years old. So attorneys for Crow, now 16, cited his age as one of the factors in asking for a shorter sentence, but the Hancock County Circuit Judge Jason Kiomo gave him the maximum penalty, news outlets reported, quote, I want to remind you that your sister was 15 at the time you murdered her, he told the kid. She was younger than you are now, and you gave her no consideration no mitigation for something less than a death sentence, end quote. Quote, your sister would have graduated high school, I think about a week or two ago. 
She'll never get that opportunity to go to college. She'll never get to walk down the aisle with her father and get married or have kids of her own. You took that from her. You gave her no opportunity to make something of herself, but you're asking me to do that for you. End quote. I mean, mic drop, right? So after the shooting, Crow ran out of the Weirton home and blamed it on a stranger. Prosecutor Stephen Dragadish, probably butchered that, said had said gunshot residue was found on Crow and there was no evidence anyone had forced their way into the home or fled from it. Quote, the fact remains, he knew what he was doing and he knew it was wrong. He thought about it beforehand and knew it was wrong. He thought about maybe not doing it, but he did it anyway. And then he thought of a defense. All that shows the danger there and the mitigating factors are very minimal compared to what happened in his state of mind. End quote. Crow could be eligible for parole after 15 years. He will remain in the juvenile justice system until his 18th birthday. Then he will be transferred to an adult facility. But my question is, why? Why did he do that? So our next one comes from NewsNationNow.com. The title reads, Sharon Tate's sister says Manson follower ruling is appalling. So... A California appeals court on Tuesday said Leslie Van Houten should be released from prison on parole. At the direction of cult leader Charles Manson, Van Houten participated in two killings. So Sharon Tate's sister, Deborah, called the court's ruling appalling and said it's catastrophic for the families of the victims. Van Houten, now in her 70s, was 19 when she and other cult members stabbed Los Angeles grocer Leno LaBianca and his wife Rosemary to death in August 1969. She said the group carved Leno's body and smeared the couple's blood on the walls. It's a pretty intense story, actually, and I know I need to do the second half of Charles's life, so I should probably get to that since I'm bringing this up, right? You guys let me know. It's been done so much, but you let me know. Anyway, the article goes on to say, the murders came the day after other Manson followers not, including Van Houten, killed pregnant actress Sharon Tate and four others. Quote, I knew that we would get here one day, Deborah Tate said in an interview with News Nation host Elizabeth Vargas. Quote, unfortunately, it's appalling to me as a society we would let predatory killers that have been categorized as domestic terrorists even be considered for parole, but that is the law as it stands. End quote. Deborah Tate says she plans to fight Van Houten's release since she has been appointed as a representative for the LaBianca family for more than two decades. Quote, they are in such an egregious situation emotionally and physically over this latest news, Deborah Tate had said in part. This is catastrophic news to them, to the other victims of the Manson family, as well as hundreds, possibly thousands of other victims' families that I have heard from in the last 24 hours begging me to turn this train around because they know it will eventually affect their cases, end quote. Now, Van Houten has been recommended for parole five times since 2016, and all of those recommendations have been declined. So what has been said about her? 
Van Houten has shown extraordinary rehabilitative efforts, insight, remorse, realistic parole plans, support from family and friends, favorable institutional reports, and at the time of the governor's decision, has received four successive grants of parole, the judge wrote. Although the governor states Van Houten's historical factors remain salient, he identifies nothing in the record indicating Van Houten has not successfully addressed those factors through many years of therapy, substance abuse programming, and other efforts, end quote. So even with the rehabilitative efforts, Deborah Tate does not believe Van Houten is remorseful for her actions. She said she has never said she was sorry in a letter or a personal form to the LaBianca family. She will cry phony tears in the courtroom saying she's sorry for the parole board, but not to her victims' families, end quote. So I'm kind of on the fence about this one, right? Because she was a teenager when she did this. And we all know that Manson had them all, you know, LSD'd, shroomed up, drugged up, messing with their minds. Do I think maybe she wish she hadn't done that? Probably so. Does she have valid remorse? Do you think, do I think that she's processed what she did and she's truly redeemed? You know, I don't know. You guys let me know. Moving on. It appears we have a few big names for this Monday morning murder in the news. This one comes from the Huffington Post. The headline reads, New details of Jeffrey Epstein's death and the frantic aftermath revealed in records obtained by AP, the Associated Press. So coming out of New York, two weeks before ending his life, and I'm going to say allegedly, supposedly in air quotes there, Jeffrey Epstein sat in the corner of his Manhattan jail cell with his hands over his ears, desperate to muffle the sound of a toilet that wouldn't stop running. Oh. Epstein was agitated and unable to sleep, jail officials observed in records newly obtained by the Associated Press. He called himself a coward and complained he was struggling to adapt to life behind bars following his July 2019 arrest on federal sex trafficking and conspiracy charges, his life of luxury reduced to a concrete and steel cage. Well, maybe the motherfucker shouldn't have been. So anyway, the disgraced financer was under psychological observation at the time for a suicide attempt just days earlier that left his neck bruised and scraped. Yet even after a 31-hour stint on suicide watch, Epstein insisted he wasn't suicidal, telling a jail psychologist that he had, quote, a wonderful life and would be crazy to end it. Then on August 10th, 2019, Epstein was dead. Side note, I personally think he was entirely too narcissistic to be suicidal, but, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to be Clintonized, so... Nearly four years later, the AP has obtained more than 4,000 pages of documents related to Epstein's death from the Federal Bureau of Prisons under the Freedom of Information Act. They include a detailed psychological reconstruction of the events leading to Epstein's suicide, as well as his health history, internal agency reports, emails, memos, and so on. Taken together, the documents the AP obtained Thursday provide the most complete accounting to date of Epstein's detention and death and its chaotic aftermath. 
The records help to dispel the many conspiracy theories surrounding Epstein's suicide, underscoring how fundamental failings at the Bureau of Prisons, including severe staffing shortages and employees cutting corners, contributed to his death. <clears throat> they shed new light on the federal prison agency's muddled response after Epstein was found unresponsive in his cell at the now shuttered Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York City. In one email, a prosecutor involved in Epstein's criminal case complained about a lack of information from the Bureau of Prisons in the critical hours after his death, writing that it was, quote, frankly unbelievable <laughs> that the agency was issuing public press releases, quote, before telling us basic information so that we can relay it to his attorneys who can relay it to his family, end quote. In another email, a high-ranking Bureau of Prisons official made a spurious suggestion to the agency's director that news reporters must have been paying jail employees for information about Epstein's death because they were reporting details of the agency's failings and the ethics of the journalists and the agency's own workers, blah, blah, blah. The documents also provide a fresh window into Epstein's behavior during his 36 days in jail, including his previously unreported attempt to contact, I'm sorry, to connect by mail with another high-profile pedophile, Larry Nasser, the U.S. gymnastics team doctor convicted of sexually abusing scores of athletes. Epstein's letter to Nassar was found returned to sender in the jail's mailroom weeks after Epstein's death. Quote, it appeared he mailed it out, and it was returned back to him. The investigator who found the letter told a prison official by email, quote, I am not sure if I should open it or should we hand it over to anyone, end quote. Here's my theory, and most of the people that know me agree with me. He's either alive somewhere, tucked away because he's keeping his mouth shut, or his mouth was shut for him, period. Moving on. And if you guys follow me on social media, you would have seen me give BTK the big bird, the big middle finger as I drove past his prison. So the next article comes from The Sun. The title reads, BTK serial killer linked to Brian Koberger case has his prison cell searched by cops as new cold case investigation opens. So prison officials have reportedly overturned the cell of the infamous imprisoned serial killer Dennis Rader as investigators have reopened a nearly 50-year-old case and may have connected him to accused Idaho killer Brian Koberger. You know, and this has kind of been hinted and whispered about. Anyway, the daughter of Rader, known as the BTK killer for how he bound tortured and killed his victims, believes he has been in contact with Koberger, who's 28 years old. However, investigators are more interested in his connection to the death of a 16-year-old cheerleader in 1976. So Koberger, 28, was charged with the murders of the University of Idaho students. We've heard all about that. Quote, it's very common for people in the public or criminology students especially to correspond with my father via letters and sometimes talk to him on the phone Raider's daughter, Carrie Rawson, told Fox News, and we really know that this is kind of common. I know a lot of you actually have written serial killers and stuff, so it's super common. Other than this, the pair were also taught by and worked with the same serial killer expert. So Koberger received his master's degree in criminal justice at DeSales University, blah, blah, blah. We know all of this. So 
she says, since Dr. Ramslin had a long-term epidemic intimate relationship with my father and a personal friendship, I wouldn't be surprised if Koberger at least tried to contact my father or had contact. She added, we don't have proof of it, but we would need to see letters at Koberger's home or at my father's jail cell, end quote. So I don't know how much validity there is to that, but that's some news. Okay, so I think for our final article, it comes from CNN.com, take that as you will. And the article uh, header says, a Florida woman's car caught fire with her children inside while she allegedly shoplifted in a mall. So a Florida woman, gotta love it when we lead with that, has been arrested and charged after her car caught fire with her unattended children inside while she shoplifted inside a mall in Oviedo, police said. The woman identified as Alicia Moore, 24, parked in a Dillard's parking lot around noon, May 26th, leaving two children in the car, according to the arrest report issued by the Oviedo Police Department. Moore went inside the store where loss prevention personnel watched her and an unknown man shoplift items for about an hour, according to the report. Moore was leaving the store when she saw her car engulfed in flames, dropped the stolen merchandise, and ran out of the store, police said. Shoppers witnessed the fire and helped rescue the children from the flames, the report said. The two children were transported to Arnold Palmer Children's Hospital, and one child suffered first-degree burns to her face and ears, according to a report. So the mother was interviewed and requested an attorney. She was arrested by the neighboring Orlando Police Department, quote, for outstanding warrants in other counties, end quote, unrelated to the incident. While in custody at the Orange County Jail, Moore was charged with aggravated child neglect and arson, according to the report. Quote, it is undetermined what ignited the fire. However, if Moore was not being neglectful, it is unlikely the child would have been injured. So the mom also faces four additional charges of petty theft, battery, and assault from previous incidences and is being held on a $48,000 bond, according to jail records. She was arraigned Friday and pleaded not guilty on both charges related to the incident with her children. So the thing that irritates me the most about this is that why are the children always sort of the last priority in these situations? Like if you cannot take better care of your kids, what is your problem? So I know that's a little bit short, but that's all I have for you this week because, again, I'm out on the road and I kind of lugged all of my recording stuff with me to do this, but I didn't want you guys to do without. You know I'm always keeping my eye on the news. Um, there are some people that leave me news reports on the Serial Killing, a podcast fan page on Facebook, and I really, really appreciate those that do that because then that kind of helps me find more interesting cases. Um, you can also DM me on Instagram, uh, serial underscore killing. But outside of that, have a good week. Um, stay cool, stay calm. Try not to do the passive-aggressive emails. We'll get through this, and I will talk to you on Thursday. Have a good day.